Our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Ayn Rand once said, Rationalization is a process of not perceiving reality, but attempting to make reality fit one's emotions. Welcome, I'm Rick, and welcome to Christian Questions. This is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And you might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 18 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term, different perspective has its basis in three things— godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 965th broadcast, and we have talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. So we thank you for joining us today. This is, well, today is not a call-in format, but it is a contact. We are contact-friendly for today because we do have a guest. So let's get started. So, Jonathan, what's the question? What's the scripture? Well, Rick, our question is, how were politics part of Jesus's crucifixion? And our theme text is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So as we get into this subject, Jonathan, we just want to remind our listeners, especially if you're listening for the first time, it's always our objective with each subject that we choose to approach it in a biblical, very relevant, practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite. We try to find their true meaning and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. So once again, the question for today is, how were politics part of Jesus' crucifixion? Think about the death of Jesus. Thinking about it always produces a variety of emotions. On one hand, we feel a deep sense of gratitude, hope, and praise for Without his willing sacrifice and ignominious death, we would all remain under the sentence of sin with no possible way out. In short, we and the entire human race would be doomed to destruction. On the other hand, when we think of his death, we feel that dull, persistent, aching pain of sadness. For we know that Jesus was an entirely innocent man who was subject to the most unfair and devious kinds of deception, mistreatment, and torture. Did you ever wonder what was behind the events that brought Jesus to the point of crucifixion? Did you ever think about who did what and why to position the Savior of all mankind as an enemy of the state? We were wondering those very things, Jonathan, so we had to draft in somebody special to give us answers on that. Our guest for today's podcast is Tom Ruggirello, a longtime friend, longtime contributor to Christian Questions. Good evening, Tom. How are you tonight? I'm fine. Good evening, Rick and Jonathan. So um, first, can I say something first, though, before we start? Well, I just you- want to tell you how grateful I am for your ministry on Christian Questions. 
I know it's been a blessing to many, and I'm really honored to be with you. It's a privilege to speak to you. I, like you mentioned, I've known you both most of my adult life, and you are both wonderful examples of Christ-like living. And so you are the the right people to be doing this. Well, thank you, Tom. We really appreciate that, and um, very much so. By by God's grace, I'll tell you that. So, so Tom, just a little bit about who, who you are and, and why you're in the position you're in, and why are we talking about this subject? <laughs> Well, um, I live in the Chicago area. I've been an elder with the Chicago Bible students for about 30 years now. Uh, you asked once what was my interest in this subject, and I, I think, like you, anything that has to do with Jesus interests me. All right. But what really amazes me about this whole story is how Jesus dealt with the people who persecuted him. He came to save the very people who did these things to, to him, who hated him. And I marvel at that. How could he not hate them for what they did or harbor even a, an ounce of bitterness in his heart? And so the answer to that question is extremely important because as Christians, we're supposed to follow the pattern that he laid out for us. Right. So when I have situations in my life, I have something to look for as to how my leader dealt with these uh, experiences of those who mistreated him. Okay, so as we look at this particular subject, again, how were politics part of Jesus' crucifixion? What, what are we going to try to zero in on, Tom, with, with, with this particular subject? Well, we're going to look at the politics that led up to his death, some of the backroom dealings that were uh, accomplished in order to, to get what the scribes and Pharisees wanted. Uh, and so in examining the events that led up to his life, we're going to see that there was a premeditated design by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to kill Jesus. There was evil motivation there. Uh, and we'll get into some of the wrong motivation they had. But you know, you can learn from, from studying a poor example as well as a good example. That's right. And in this story, we have both. Yeah. And so I think it's important to get the lessons from each side. Okay, so let we're going to have to define the characters first. So folks, in this first segment, we're going to focus on defining who's who and what's what. Now, now obviously, we're going to begin with Jesus. When you look at Jesus, Tom, and again, we, we'll, we'll expand it, so you don't need to go into a lot of detail here, but when you look okay. at Jesus, what do you see in terms of his motivation and, and who he was and what he stood for? Well, you know, actions tell you what a person's motivations are. Uh, when someone sacrifices their life and endures extreme suffering for the benefit of others, that's an indication of pure motivation. Right. And in Jesus' case, I think only the purest form of love could motivate him to do what he did for us. So in Jesus, we see a pure desire to do good for others in spite of what was happening to him. Okay. So... The purity of his desire and his focus and his mission. We're going to use that as the backdrop, and then we're going to look at the rest of these characters and see where they fit, and we're going to see the, the contrasts and the differences, and we're going to hopefully learn some pretty powerful lessons. So we've got Jesus, obviously. He's, he's our, our model. Second, there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in our Bible studies as Christians, we often lump these guys together as both groups stood against Jesus. We know that. But who were the Pharisees and Sadducees, and what were the differences between them? So let's, let's start with the Pharisees, Tom. Who were they? Okay. Well, they were very different. These two groups were very different. Like you say, we tend to lump them all together, but they have very different views and outlooks on what their role was. Uh, the Pharisees were more religious, the more religious teachers of Israel. They were widely accepted as the teachers of the day. You would think the Sadducees, who were the priests, would be in that role, but they weren't, and we'll see why. Uh, the name Pharisees is interesting. 
it's not real positive, but it's believed that it was originally a derogatory name given to them by the Sadducees to depict how they separated themselves. That's the, what the phrase means, separated ones. Um, how they, in their conceit, separated themselves from uh, the Gentiles and from other Jews who weren't keeping the rituals of the law as they were. All right, so... So it was a thing, but that, that's what they were called. All right, so, so they put themselves in a very unique position of uh, in relation to the law and into their their separation and their understanding or their their thinking that they understood it what was that separate kind of position it, it, they, they put themselves above the average person right yes yes they had the um, the oral law of traditions that they created because they said you know there's not enough detail in the mosaic law and i'll just give you an example the mosaic law says um you shouldn't work on the sabbath right that's all it says right so Somebody comes to a, a, a priest and says, well, what does that mean? Can I walk two blocks to get my cow back into the barn? And so somebody has to decide how much work is too much. And so the Pharisees set up all these laws that would dictate every ounce of activity that a Jewish person could and couldn't do. So they added a whole bunch to what the written law was. Yes, it's and called the oral tradition of interpretations. And the Sadducees hated them. That was one big area of disagreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, and and Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 15, uh, verses 1 to 3, uh, because that gives a, it's a scripture showing us this these oral interpretations and their prominence in, in relation to the Pharisees. Then some Pharisees and scribes... All right, Jonathan just froze there. Um, let's give it a minute. <laughs> All right, am I still frozen? Nope. Try that again. Okay. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So there you have it, Tom, exactly what you said. Why do your disciples break the tradition of of the elders. It wasn't, are you, why do they go against the Mosaic law? But it was about the tradition of the elders. And that seemed to be bigger than the Mosaic law at that point. And there was nothing wrong with trying to explain what hand washing meant and what, you know, the Sabbath meant. But they took it to such an extreme that they created a, a set of formulas that if you follow these formulas, you will be okay with God. And Jesus said, well, your outward behavior is good, but your inward is, a, is an abomination. They weren't keeping the heart intent of the law. And so what ended up happening is the Pharisees created a very narrow path then for acceptability before God because of all these traditions. And what we'll see is, you know, Jesus went and talked to all those people who were outside that very narrow path. And, of course, they didn't like it so much. So, go and ahead, Rick, Jeff. I know we don't want to get into this, but we can see... Christianity today, in some ways, doing the same thing. Yeah, there are, we, we have to be careful that we don't add to or subtract from the written Word of God. To try to explain it is one thing, but to begin to add all of these extra things, not so good. So, so you've got the Pharisees, Tom, they're, they're, very, they're taking on this religious responsibility, they're doing a lot of the explaining, they're adding all of these oral traditions— who were the Sadducees now, and what, what, just tell us a little bit about them, and then let's compare the two groups. Well, the Sadducees, the name probably comes from the term House of Zadok. Zadok was a high priest during the reign of David and Solomon when the first temple was built. And so Zadok established his house in the priesthood. 
So the Sadducees were the priests. In fact, you could not be a priest if you were not in the lineage here. So this was a handed down thing. Okay. All and right. so they, they, they did all the functions of the temple. All right. And they, but, go ahead. Uh, uh, the problem was, is that they got disinterested in the temple oh, because they were affected by um, Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy took them away from their Jewishness. And so they lost a lot of the importance of the law. And they wanted to be more cosmopolitan. They were more into the politics and the running of the state rather than the religious elements that they should have been involved in. So they became much more political. And the, and the Pharisees, of course, hated that. And they ran the temple more as politicians than as priests. And so there was a real strong division between them. So the Sadducees were supposed to be religious but became entirely political. And the Pharisees were supposed to be, what, sort of supporting them, but they became uh, um, uh, oppressively religious in the way they, they, they pushed the in people. In that sense, the Pharisees almost became too religious. They became zealots over for the wrong things, for the letter and the, the oral traditions. But it's not that the Sadducees weren't religious, but they were a mixture, a watered-down mixture of Judaism with Greek philosophy. Okay, so Sadducees, very, very political watered-down mixture of Judaism with Greek philosophy. The Pharisees overdid the law and overdid all of those things. We'd love to hear from you right now. We're not taking calls, but we'd love your app comments uh, or your chats on the chat board, or you can email us at christianquestions.com. Okay, so we've done a little bit of comparison between the two groups. Now, again, we want to define the players here. So we've got Jesus and his pure motivation. We've got the Pharisees that became these zealots that created these oral traditions which made it impossible for the average person to be acceptable, and the Sadducees who were supposed to be very religious but ended up entirely political. Thirdly, the third group of individuals we want to define quickly here is Annas and Caiaphas. Now this is odd. Both were high priests and both were involved in the process of trying to destroy Jesus. Why two high priests and what were the differences between them? Well, this is a perfect example that there was politics involved in the Sadducees because there was a there was a, an effect with the Roman Empire. Uh, the Romans would not allow the Jews to appoint their own high priests anymore because they saw him as a political figure that had control of the politics of Israel. And so rather than allowing the Jews to appoint a religious high priest, they appointed who they thought would be more subservient and more favorable to Rome. And so what happened here, the reason there were two high priests is because Annas was a very strong-willed and dominant man, and he would kind of buck the Roman system. And so the Romans simply took him out and said, we're going to replace you with Caiaphas. His, I think it was his son-in-law, and who was a little bit you know, weaker, more able to be controlled. And so even though Caiaphas was the official high priest appointed by the Romans, Annas, because of his dominant personality, was still the key figure. He was still the chief. And Caiaphas was under him. So in in relation to title, though, would you say that Caiaphas held the Caiaphas title? Caiaphas was the high priest, yes. But Annas was, was the, the mover. Annas was the, right. the, the, the deep and strong influence. Um, and Annas was of a—now, was he of a lineage of, uh, to, to get to the high priest, or how, how, did, how, did, how did that work? That, that's a good question. I'm not sure if he was actually in the lineage, but he was, he was called from Egypt— and Egypt was, uh, the Jews in Egypt were deeply entrenched in Greek philosophy, even more than those in Israel. And so I can't answer your question whether he was of the house of Zadok or not. He probably was, 
but he was really steeped in Greek philosophy. All right, so you got so you got a bunch of contradictions already. We got the Pharisees who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, and they're they're making it impossible for the average person. The Sadducees who have ditched religion for politics. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas, powerful man. Caiaphas, figurehead. That that are working, and none of this is in accordance with Jewish law, right? Right. You know, there's one one point that kind of emphasizes this, and it's only I believe it's only mentioned in the book of John when Jesus was first arrested. You know where he went? He was taken to the house of Annas, and then after Annas examined him, then he was taken to Caiaphas. It shows you the hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, and that that makes perfect sense. You have a quote here from the the book Life of Christ by Frederick Farrar. Uh, just, yes. just go over that and just give us a couple of comments. Okay, he says, Since the days of Herod the Great, the high priesthood had been degraded from a permanent religious office to a temporary secular distinction. So that's showing you that this is a political position, and it wasn't for life like it had been under the Jewish system, but it was appointed by the Romans. And so it became—this really contributed to the corruption of how the high priesthood was supposed to operate, because now you have the Gentile influence in there. Okay, so now you're you're bringing in very powerful Gentile influence into Judaism, and that Gentile influence is entirely pagan. Because, you know, when, again, when we talk about Jews and Gentiles, a lot of times we think of Gentile Christians. This is not... This oh. is not the same thing, not yeah, even yeah, remotely close. So, uh, so Annas has power. Caiaphas is the figurehead. None of it is working in relation to the way things should be working when you're looking at the way Judaism was supposed to be. And I, I, I wanted you to, to touch on Pontius Pilate briefly, but actually we don't have time uh, in this okay. first segment. But um, the bottom line here, folks, is we are beginning to outline who's who and what's what to figure out what happened to Jesus. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick, with our special guest, Tom Ruggiero. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus's Crucifixion? Coming up, now that we know who was who, we need to ask the question, who did what? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation by messaging us on your app or the chat board or emailing us at ChristianQuestions.com. Christian Questions, a weekly habit that's good for you. Thanks for tuning us in every Monday evening. Join our conversation any day and time at ChristianQuestions.com. So we're talking about politics. This is a politically free zone, but for tonight we're talking about politics, not politics today, mind you, not politics in the United States of America, but the politics of the time of Jesus and how the political wranglings of those who were supposed to be religiously oriented were, were what got Jesus crucified. It's really a, a tangled web of deceit, as we're going to uh, be going through. And Tom Ruggiero is our guest uh, for this particular program. He's done a lot of work and study on this subject. So, so, Tom, in this segment, let's begin looking critically at the politically motivated actions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And let's start 
with the time after Jesus triumphantly rides into Jerusalem after he clears the temple of the money changers. Okay, so with that background, um, you know he's 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 cleared the, t- the 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 temple. He's clear. You know he's, he's wreaked havoc with the money changers because there was corruption there. Um, what do you see? What is the stark difference between Jesus' view and use of the temple? versus the money changers view and use of the temple and then how did the money changers fit in with these political groups the pharisees and the sadducees well the difference becomes very obvious when you look at how jesus what he did when he came to the temple in contrast to what the money changers did there you know when jesus came to the temple he healed the blind he healed the lame he taught about his coming kingdom he never asked for money he never looked down on the poor Um, He, in fact, he came to the poor. He was attracted to the poor. He was there to serve others. Now, the job of a money changer was exactly that, to change funds. You couldn't put a Roman coin in the Jewish temple. You had to use the Jewish temple money. And so it was a legitimate operation to exchange. You give me so many Roman coins, I'll give you so many temple coins. But the problem was the exorbitant exchange rates that they were charging people. And first of all, they shouldn't have been in the temple doing that anyway. They should have been outside somewhere and doing it fairly. But they were so, um, the exchange was so bad that Jesus said it was like a den of thieves. So the the, uh, money changers were making exorbitant profits. But there was also something else. There were also sellers of animals in the court of the priests of the temple. And what they were doing was the same thing as the money changers. They were charging exorbitant rates for the animals they were selling to the people who would offer them in the temple. And one thing that really infuriated Jesus, and it specifically says he overturned the tables of those who sold the doves, because the dove was a little animal, it was inexpensive, and it was for the poor. And it enraged him that they would charge exorbitant rates, and it made it difficult for the poor to do a service to God. So, again, you see this corruption, and we'll, and we'll find the connection between the money changers and these political groups a little bit later. But, Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 21, 14 to 15, because Jesus clears it out and then does good things like Tom is talking about, and then there's a reaction to the goodness of Jesus. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant. All right. Now, where, why do you do that? How can you become indignant after such goodness? Well, what amazes me is that, you know, he's healing people. He's raising the dead. He's doing miracles. And that had no impact on them. Right. Um, I don't think they're reacting to the good works. I think they're ignoring the good works. What they're reacting to is the, the crowd shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, because that phrase was reserved for the Messiah. And so they were proclaiming him as Messiah, and obviously they, the priests didn't believe that, so it was a false claim. But how do you not recognize the good works? Yeah, well, true. Jonathan? Yeah, envy, I think, really is brought out in what Tom is talking about, plus the greed. Those two were the formula behind them, and um, that is totally evil. And, and the interesting thing is, oftentimes during his ministry, Jesus would address something like that immediately with words or something or a parable, but he didn't this time. Uh, so what, what was it that he did that's a little bit different but still kind of the same uh, to address the attitudes that he was seeing 
uh, from the, uh, the the Pharisees here? Well, you know, he, he did respond. Uh, in some ways, it was similar because if a disciple would say something, Jesus might give a parable that would teach a character lesson. Right, right. Well, here he gives a series of three parables, and they're all condemning of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. And, and each parallel, each parable is teaching a very similar point, but the Pharisees weren't getting it at first. Okay. So we're, and he gave those parables the next day. Yes. Okay. And that's kind of interesting. Came back, came back to the temple. Right. He comes back and he sort of, okay, let's pick up where we left off. So we're going to touch on these three parables really quickly. And I mean, really quickly. So Jonathan, the first one is really short. So why don't you just read through that for us? Matthew 21, 28 to 31. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first one. Okay, so the audience gets it right. They say, yes, the first one. So, Tom, very quickly on this, because we want to get through these three parables here. Okay, well, well, the key point is the rest of verse 31. Okay. He said, Verily I say unto you that the publican and the harlot go into the kingdom before you. Okay. Now, here, the the scum of the earth, in their mind, has a place in the kingdom before them. Okay, because— so he's condemning them for the heart. Because these are the people that the Pharisees made the road to God's kingdom so narrow— they were automatically excluded. And Jesus is, has the nerve to say that the ones that you are excluding are the ones that are going to get into the kingdom before you. Yes. Okay. Right. So that's a, that's a tough lesson for them to hear. Okay. Especially because they thought they were the most righteous. How could you right. say that to us? We are the most righteous. Yeah, we got it. What's wrong with you? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So the second parable, we got to just go through these quickly because, again, we've got to get into the, the, the corruption. But we're watching the thinking, and that really is an important uh, revealer of what's going on. You're seeing the thinking of, of individuals. The second parable was the parable of the vineyard. That's in Matthew 21, 33 to 43. So, again, Tom, sum that up really, really quickly and then give us the lesson very quickly. Okay, the parable is about a man who had a vineyard, and he gave it to certain men to care for it. And when it was time for harvest, he sent his servants to receive the fruitage of the vineyard. And when the servants got there, the, the keepers of the vineyard, they stoned some, and they killed the servants who went to collect the fruitage. And then the owner says, well, I'll send my son, because they'll respect him because he's my son, and they end up killing him as well. And at that point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hadn't caught on that Jesus was talking about them, but he brings the point home in 43 and points it right to them. Okay. So, and so what is the point that he brings home to them? He says, um, therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruit thereof. So the vineyard really is the character development of Israel that they should have been developing. And yet, because they were unfaithful stewards, they were making these minuscule little laws for people to follow, and they were missing the whole point of the law was character growth. So another stinging rebuke for the, the Pharisees, and they get the point, and they're told that they're not even going to have the privilege of the kingdom anymore. So in that first parable, it's, you know, you've done the wrong thing. And the second parable is it's going to be removed from you. So what's the third parable? Well, it continues to make the same point about their failure. The, the parable is about a king who planned a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants out to invite guests, but all the invited guests refused to come. In fact, they mistreated the servants again and killed them. And as a result, the king was angry. He went and killed those guests. He burned their cities. And then, as it says, he went out into the highways and byways 
uh, to invite new guests. Now the Pharisees were getting it. They didn't need an explanation. Yeah, okay. They knew he was talking about him. And then they went to counsel together how they'd stumble him in his speech. So it was from this point on then that the Pharisees and the Sadducees took counsel together on how they might discredit Jesus by entangling him in his own speech now. That is a remarkable thing that we can't underestimate. These two groups hated each other. It was unnatural for them to counsel together. But now they had a common enemy. And so politics says if you have something you want to get accomplished, you have to have bipartisan support. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what they were trying to achieve here. And that's the only reason they would cooperate, because they really did not cooperate on anything else. So this is interesting. They never cooperate with each other except in, the, in relation to trying to trap Jesus. So they come up with a plan. It's the Pharisees' plan. This is their first plan of attack. So um, uh, let, let's— um, Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 22, 15 and 16, and then Tom, take us through what this plan of attack is, how it's set up, and then how Jesus answers it. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said, and they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians, saying... Okay, so what's happening, what are they doing, and, and what's the plan, what's the attack? Well, well at, at face value, you don't get how clever this is. This is really... Un- you almost say an ingenious evil, okay? Because <laughs> they were trying to portray an honest dispute between themselves and the Herodians. If you know who the Herodians and you see what the trick is, who they were, they were primarily a political body attached, as the as the name would suggest, to the House of Herod. They were members of the royal court of Herod, and by being in the royal court of Herod, they represented the interests of Rome. So the debate here was the Pharisees' disciples said we shouldn't pay. The Herodians say, we should pay the taxes. And so the dilemma they thought were they were creating for Jesus was, well, if I say I shouldn't pay the taxes, then the Herodians are going to get him trouble. If you say I should pay the taxes, the people who are listening will not like you because they hated the taxes. All right. So it was a lose-lose situation, they right. thought, for Jesus. So Jesus, there's no way out. So here's how they present their question. Jonathan, Matthew 22, 16 and 17. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Loaded question, Tom? Absolutely loaded. Because of what I just said, I probably should have said that after we read the verse. <laughs> but it was a lose-lose situation, they thought, for Jesus. And they, it, comes, they were, it, it, comes across, it, it comes across so nice and so... We're just wondering what you think about this really difficult dilemma. So how does Jesus answer this lose-lose question? Well, he doesn't start by answering it directly. He starts by talking about the, the motivation of those who came to him. He's suggesting that in debating the issue of tribute money, these people were neglecting something even more important, and that's what they owed to God. And you know, that's a wonderful lesson for anyone who's a Christian, anyone who's religious, the world, men in the world work for things like money and social position, and they put that first as their first priority in life, but seldom do they realize what we all owe to God. And I think that's the point that disarmed those who were waiting for Jesus to make a mistake so that they could set their trap. That's okay. who we get with Jesus. That's his power. Go ahead, Rick. So, so you've got a question that they ask Jesus. Jesus' answer is, you shouldn't even be talking about this. You're missing the point. So, so here's Jesus' answer. Again, Jonathan, Matthew 22, 19 to 21. 
Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So his perspective on this matter is one of crystal clear spirituality. So how does how does he put this question into a whole different perspective that they could not have even imagined? Well, I think he's saying it is proper to pay your tax, but that doesn't mean anything. Hmm. What you owe to God is what's important. So you've got the wrong emphasis here. You've got to emphasize what you should be doing with your life, not the few pittance of tax money that you owe. So he really answered the question brilliantly. So you've got a brilliant answer, and now what, what's when 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 they look at their this answer? What what's um, well? First of all, l- let's get down to a lesson for us. Okay, when you look at the answer that Jesus gives, and he's saying, "Look, you've got to be focused on the right thing." Boil it down. What what should we take from that? Because this is a debate. You know, should I pay taxes or should I not? Should I be involved in 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 in, in demonstrating against the taxation of of my paycheck or what? And, and what do we do as Christians by Jesus' answer? Well, I think we have to realize that those those issues can distract us from what we should be doing with our lives. Uh, they can, you know, the Lord looks at the heart. If we had to put um, a rating on what God rates as the most important things, he rates heart development as number one. These other things are fluff. He, he doesn't care about these things. And so I think for us, they should be inconsequential. The world labors over these. They debate over these things. And it's very easy to get caught up in that. And the Christians shouldn't. They should stay away from that. They should stay away from the politics of the world because that can just suck you in and get you into these kind of ridiculous debates. But listen to the words of Jesus because they go right to the heart of what we should be trying to do in our Christian lives. So in this fabrication of this question to try and make Jesus look foolish, it's actually the Pharisees that end up looking foolish, that end up with the duh look on their face, because he gives them an answer that exposes their lack of true religion, their lack of true spirituality, and exposes that their motivation is not toward that at all, but in fact their motivation is toward trying to trap him. It's a political move, and that particular political move at this particular time, just like always with Jesus, that particular political move fails. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest, Tom Ruggiero. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? Coming up, the Pharisees again fail to trap Jesus. How do you think the Sadducees responded? Mm -hmm. That's next. The plot thickens. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation via the chat board, or you can email us at ChristianQuestions.com. And you can now message us on your smartphone app during the program, and we'll try to share your comments on air. 
And uh, today we have a special guest with us, Tom Ruggiero. We're talking about the politics of the crucifixion. We're talking about the things that happened, the devious, dirty, hypocritical things that happened to bring Jesus to the point of looking like a guilty man, looking like an enemy of the state. And in the last segment, we saw the Pharisees make an attempt to trap Jesus in his words with what they thought was a brilliantly crafted question, only to have it come right back at them. So the bottom line here is just because the Pharisees failed didn't mean that the Sadducees would just roll over. After all, they saw themselves as the more powerful group anyway. So again, Tom, we need to stress that the Pharisees and Sadducees were very different, and they did not like each other. Yes, absolutely that. So, but they were they were together on this issue. And this is this is a rarity for the Pharisees and the Sadducees in those days to be together on much of anything. So the Sadducees then came up with their own plan of attack. What was it? Well, she would read that Matthew text. Okay, so Matthew 20, Okay, Matthew 22, 24 to 28. Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother, likewise the second also, and the third, until the seventh. And at last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. So, do they have a, a carefully crafted question here? This is the same motivation that the Pharisees had with the taxation question. But what's interesting about this, if you know one of the things that the Sadducees believed, this question makes sense coming from them, because they did not believe in the resurrection. Therefore, they're trying not only to discredit Jesus with a seeming impossible question, but they're trying to discredit the doctrine of the resurrection as well. All right, now, Tom, I just got, I just got to tell you, tell you one thing. One of the reasons I have always remembered that as from a child on up is I yes. was told that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's why they're sad, you see. Yes, you're right. And that's the <laughs> only way I ever remembered that fact. <laughs> whatever it takes, Rick. <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes. Okay. So, so they craft this question to try to really blow up Jesus in a couple of different ways. So l- let's go to Jesus' answer and then give us the lesson on that. Jonathan, Matthew okay. 22 30 to 32. In the resurrection, they shall neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of. Okay, so the. Uh, Jesus gives an answer, and again, it's not the expected answer. So what's, what do we take from this, Tom? Well, here again, in Jesus' answer, we need to know what Jesus is addressing when he says they are like the angels. Pharisees didn't, Sadducees didn't believe in angels. So now Jesus is answering that as well. And so he's quoting from, uh, where is it, Exodus 3.6 uh, there. He quotes from the writings of Moses. And the reason he does that is because the Sadducees believed only in the five written books of Moses. So what better authority to quote from than authority that they recognize and accepted? And he's, that last part, that he is uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and then he adds, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
So what Jesus is saying by that is you Sadducees recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as faithful, holy men. Well, a God is going to reward them in a resurrection. If you're, if you're faithful to God, he's not going to leave you in the grave. And so that's his way of proving that there is a resurrection. But also the other part about answering uh, whose wife will she be of the seven? Is that how it went? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's answering something that we would never have known about. It gives us a glimpse into how the social condition of his kingdom is going to be, that there will be no marriage or giving in marriage. That's something we would not have known had this question not been asked. So Jesus gives us a deeper insight into the social fabric of how the kingdom will be made up. Okay, so so Jesus' answer to them then, um, it diffuses the question by using what they believe in to show them that they're not believing what they say they believe in. So he goes to a source that they trust and says, the source that you trust contradicts your own belief system, wake up. And then, he, and then, like you said, he adds a dimension that we would not have ever even been, been aware of. So you can see that the, the political wrangling between these two groups to go trap Jesus both times um, worked against them and uh, was something that they, um, they weren't expecting. There were, there were answers that they weren't expecting. Jonathan, we uh, just want to get a, a quick comment uh, from uh, a, a listener. Trish, you've got a comment for us? Yes, I do. This is from the chat. Um, It says, they were indignant because Jesus threatened their power. Proper use of power is especially emphasized for us as Christians, also in regard to leadership. 1 Peter 5, 2-3, shepherd the flock of God, not as lording it over those allotted to you to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. All right, so the idea, again, the lesson that we should have uh, in terms of our own situation of, of making sure we follow the, the living example of Jesus as well as the words of Jesus in the proper use of power, which is something the Pharisees and Sadducees obviously did not do. So, um, so Tom, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Both attacks have failed, but a question you have to answer is, why are the Sadducees, Sadducees suddenly so much more involved now in trying to trap Jesus? Because when you look at the Gospels, you don't see them coming up like the Pharisees. It's like the Pharisees are everywhere, and they're the arch enemy, and they're always after Jesus. But the Sadducees kind of like parachute in and start fighting. What, what, what's up with that? Well, it, it indicates that at, at the last part of Jesus' ministry, they started seeing him as a political problem. Um, not as a religious teacher. It really wasn't a religious issue for the Sadducees. It was about his popularity, and Jonathan mentioned the jealousy of that, but also the threat to their power, as the comment was just made. And uh, also the scourging of the temple comes in significantly as to making this a total political move by the Sadducees. That's what they cared about, their power and their wealth. Okay, so when you say the scourging of the temple— uh, what was it about the scourging of the temple that really, really got the ire of the Sadducees way, way up? Okay, there's a really nice quote from Farrar again, if I could read that. It sure. goes right to the heart of that. It says, There is every reason to believe that the shops which had intruded under the temple porticos were not only sanctioned by their authority, but even managed for their profit. Ooh. To interfere with these was to rob them of one important source of that wealth and worldly comfort to which they attached such extravagant importance. Okay. That's it. 
he was hitting them in their money belt. <laughs> All right. And when you're, to be blunt, when you're in politics, when the money belt gets attacked, you get mad. Yes. <laughs> okay. Right. And that's the only reason they got involved, because he was a threat to them and not particularly to what he was teaching. All right. So, so we look at this and, and you see how the motivation was entirely out of line with what Jewishness was supposed to be. They, because of their, their being under Roman rule, had the wrangling for political power within what they were able to get. And the Sadducees, who should have been deeply concerned with the issues of the Jewish law, were simply far more concerned with issues of Roman politics and the politics within Judaism so they could maintain power, so they could maintain profitability from the temple. And Jesus really, really upset that. And so, you know that word motivation is coming in a lot here tonight. Yeah, yeah. The test of motivation is really important. It's not always your outward conduct that God judges. It, it's the motivation of your heart. So those of us who are attempting and want to please God have to keep control and inspiration to have the right motivation of heart. That's everything. And the Pharisees and Sadducees found common ground between the two of them, even though they were enemies, because their motivation was to destroy Jesus, destroy the miracle worker, destroy the one who took care of the poor, destroy the one who brought peace and who brought something good to everyone he touched. And that was their motivation to destroy him. That, that floors me that they could see the things, the good things that he did and not be affected by that. We know that there were some Pharisees who were but they were afraid. They kept quiet. Nicodemus was a perfect example. He was a believer, and yet he came to Jesus secretly by night. So I, it, it's troubling me that, that they could see those things and not be really touched by them. All right. Well, you know what, Tom? Let's trouble you even more, okay? Uh, because, okay. <laughs> because when we talk about the, 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 the last night of Jesus, we always talk about the illegal trials that he underwent. Uh, and in your, in your notes and, and things that we were, we were sharing before the, the podcast, you had mentioned that, you know, from your perspective, you, we can't even look, look at it like a trial. And, and you may give some quotes from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah. So talk to us about what happened in that environment with the, quote, trial, unquote, trials of the night before Jesus' crucifixion and, and what, what was wrong or what could have been right or, or what. Well, in this book, Alfred Edersheim, he examines what happened there um, at, the house, at the house of Caiaphas, and he compares it to what should have happened under Jewish law. Okay. And he came up with three items that were major violations of Jewish law that all these men knew. And I can go through them really quick. They're, yeah. they're you know, very obvious. The first one is there was the absence of a, a note taker or a court recorder, as we know him today. Uh, the second thing that there was no defense attorney for Jesus. Now, we might think that that's a modern thing, that uh, defendants should always have a, uh, a, an, a an attorney to represent them. In fact, if you can't afford one, the court will always appoint a right. public defender. That's not something new. That was part of the Jewish law. Uh, the fact that the proceedings were held in the palace of Caiaphas rather than the usual meeting place of the Sanhedrin would have outraged every principle of Jewish criminal law. And in fact, it was like going to the home of the trial judge to have it. That's how 
how bad it was. All right, all right. Just, oh, go ahead. Just, just pause there for a minute because, you know, you're, you're talking about things, and it really does sound like court proceedings today, you know, what's supposed to be, like the court, the, the note-taker, note the court recorder, uh, the mm -hmm. defense attorney, and doing it in the right place in the right way. And you think about it, and our court system is very, very particular about those things. And one of the points that I think we need to understand and we need to make is the whole American justice system is based on the Old Testament. It's based on much of what was written in the Old Testament to set it up so it could be found to be a just way of dealing with people. And I find that fascinating because people just love to hate Christianity and, and, and the Bible these days in this country. And yet, they all clamor for justice. But when you go to try to define the justice they're clamoring for, they use a system that they got that we got from the Old Testament. And I just yeah. think that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, so there's those three things that were were blatantly wrong with what how they treated Jesus that night. There, there's there's several other things. Yeah, and what's interesting is that these all these men knew these rules. These right. were not ignorant men these were educated in the law they oh. knew what they were doing okay so motivation oh. then motivation comes into play again because doesn't matter what i know what matters is what i want and their motivation overrode their better sense of un of doing things god's way go ahead yeah yeah the other point that edersheim makes was that a, ver a verdict was always decided through a vote of the sanhedrin members there was no vote taken he was just condemned the other thing is that uh, it was also Jewish law that a verdict could not be decided on the same day as the trial. And this was especially true if the verdict was death. And the reason for that is to let the emotions cool, let the calm reason make a decision. Well, they decided right away what they were going to do. And lastly, no proceedings like this sh should have been begun at night nor even in the afternoon. No process could take place on Sabbaths or feast days or even the day before. So all six of these things were violated in the trial of Jesus. And uh, when, when you see that, again, you've got to ask yourself the question, why would somebody do that? And the answer is because my political position is being threatened and I have to stop it no matter what the cost. So, so The ends justify the means here. Yeah, yeah, or not. <laughs> so, so, so wrap this up, Tom. Wrap this point up for us with these things going wrong. Because there was there's a phrase that you sent in your notes that I think is just absolutely profound that we need to focus on. Well, these men thought that they had to do what they were doing, and they disguised it as for the good of the nation. Okay. He has to die. And so they justified their wrong actions. And so the phrase is, politics took precedence over principle. Nothing should violate a righteous moral principle. No matter what the end goal is, the righteous principle should come first. And they didn't do that. All right. So it's a matter of understanding righteousness versus the expediency of the moment. And the expediency of the moment oftentimes gives individuals that sense of, I gotta, I wanna, and therefore I must. And, and like you said, they framed it as for the good of the nation, we're going to break the laws of our nation, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I don't know, it just doesn't sound like any kind of sense to me whatsoever. Well, I think that's typical of politics. Politics doesn't always look for what's best for the nation. Uh, there's interest groups, 
and there's violation of, of moral principles all the time for other expediencies. But that's what they say. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. what they say. And that's the thing we have to be really aware of. So what we want to do is focus on the idea that this is about what they wanted, not at all about what was right. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan here with Rick with our special guest, Tom Giarello. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus's Crucifixion? Coming up, with all that was wrong in the Pharisee and Sadducee approach, was there anything right at all? That's next. <laughs> kind of doubt it. <laughs> You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation via the chat board, or you can email us at ChristianQuestions.com, or you can message us on your app. Christian Questions, a voice of reason in a world that's lost its way. Keep in touch at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so so Tom, in, in the last segment, we were talking about some of the um, some of the things that the Pharisees and Sadducees did, and, and, and the reasoning behind what they did. And uh, I had sort of alluded to the idea that um, you, when when looking at the the night before Jesus' crucifixion, you're looking at it and saying, "Well, I don't know that you can even call it a trial." So just just expand on that. What 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 does it more fit like in your mind? You know, it's more like an inquisition. They were looking for ways to kill Jesus, and so they were trying to come up with whatever they can. They brought in witnesses. The witnesses contradicted each other. They were inconsistent, and so they were useless. Um, and so they had to come up with some kind of charge against Jesus. So this was an inquisition. But even as an inquisition, it was unfair. You know, they they, they would slap Jesus. They would punch him for things that they construed as disrespectful. And so it really, under the Mosaic Law, should have never happened. Um, so, yeah, it was more of an inquisition than a trial. All right. So under the, so, so there's no scriptural precedent for this whatsoever to be found, no matter how hard you look. Right, right. All right. It's totally unjust. Yeah, so, yeah, Jonathan, it is a loaded question that you asked. You know, was there anything right at all? And the answer is <laughs> no, there wasn't. And, and when you think about it, you say, okay, what does all of this mean to us? Let's just let's shift gears for for a moment because you know what we're looking at is the sum total of the religious leaders of Israel at the time of Jesus were stacking themselves against Jesus in an entirely unlawful way. They were they were so politically motivated that they were not um, didn't seem to care about what the real scriptures said. And I, I think, Tom, that when you look at, at our world today, we could get into that same situation from a Christian standpoint. We can get ourselves so politically motivated and politically fired up that we say this is right and that's wrong and i got to stand for this through the political process. What's your, what's your thought on that in terms of just, just us now? Just, and then we just want to do that briefly, and then we'll go back to uh, what was happening back then. Well, I think to sum up, the simple role of the church is to bring us closer to God, to make us more like Christ, to ingrain in us the principles of righteousness and truth. 
it is not to get involved in worldly politics, not to try to fix this world, because this world is not going to endure. Right. There's going to be a new kingdom coming. That's where our loyalties must be. And I think we see that all through this. These men got distracted. They turned their eyes towards self-preservation and towards prosperity in the world, and they missed the point of what religion is supposed to do for us. All right, and and they missed it, and we can miss it as well. So we can look at them and say, oh, terrible, terrible, naughty, naughty, naughty. But the point is, we better look in the mirror and make sure we're not following the same paths and the same uh, lack of principles. Tom, you had mentioned that the the, the witnesses that they gathered together were uh, were contradictory and they didn't hold up. So so what did the how would the Pharisees and Sadducees be able to bring their fabricated case to the next level if they couldn't even get their witnesses to agree? Well, what it, it's very interesting what they did. Um, if you look at the trial or the Inquisition, their final conclusion was this was blasphemy. They asked Jesus, are you the son of God? And he, in essence, answered, yes, I am. And the high priest tore his clothes. What need we further of any witnesses? This man has proclaimed blasphemy to God. When they go to Pilate, not one word about blasphemy is mentioned. It was all political things against Rome. And so they made up things. They lied. And they made it all how Jesus would relate and undermine the authority of Rome. All right, all right, all right, let's back up. Okay, so let me get this straight. So they come up with a way to get their themselves convinced that he needs to die. And, and Jonathan, we we'll just go back to Matthew 26, just verses 63 to 68, because this is where Jesus, where Tom just mentioned, where Jesus says, oh, you know, he, he gives them the information they need because they can't get it any other way. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He blasphemed. What further need do we have a witness? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So, Tom, what, what you were saying is they, they, they were, were trying to find charges. Jesus actually gave him much more of an answer than he had to. Why would he mm -hmm. do that? Why did he do that? Well, you know, we've seen before how he could easily have gotten out of any argument. Yep. He could have gotten out of this very easily because he knew the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were both there that night. He could have very easily started talking about the resurrection, and the Sadducees would have argued against that, and the Pharisees would have supported that. In fact, the Apostle Paul does that very same thing in Acts 23, I think it is. He gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees talking, uh, fighting against each other, and he's released. Jesus didn't do that because he knew he had a higher goal in mind. He had to come and die. And so he gave himself up by saying, I am the son of God. And so this shows his willingness to be sacrificed for us. But they did not bring that blasphemy, like you said, before Pilate. They brought well, something else. Before. Well, they knew that blasphemy to a Jewish God meant nothing to Pilate. He would have laughed in their faces. So they made up charges. Um, they created something that Pilate would get Pilate's attention. And of course, they said he forbade to give tribute money to Caesar. Was that true? Remember the no. argument we just <laughs> talked about? That was a blatant lie. Right, right. His answer there was, you pay tribute money, but that doesn't mean anything. So that was a blatant lie. But it certainly got Pilate's attention 
because that's what Rome was all about, about collecting the money. So they, 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 they made up charges, uh, and they, they misquoted him in those charges, and they misquoted him saying, because they said, well, you know, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it up in three days. And that's really not what Jesus said, was it? Not at all. In fact, he made that statement three and a half years earlier. He said, if you destroy this temple, um, and he was talking about his body as the temple. They thought he meant the literal temple. But he said, if you destroy this body, I will raise it up in three days. So that's he didn't say, I will destroy this. He says, if you do this. And what's interesting about that first argument about the tribute money, who was it that was arguing about tribute money? It was the Pharisees, right. the disciples of the Pharisees who said we shouldn't pay. So he could have got them in trouble had he so chosen to do that. So the bottom line here is this is this is where the the deceptiveness and the 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 uh, the dishonesty of the Pharisees and Sadducees really comes to play, and then you see the incredible clarity and honesty of Jesus and his choosing not to go after them, choosing just to let it be to allow God's will to be done in his life. Jonathan, go ahead. Yeah, I have a quote from the commentator Russell. It says, the world's worst wickedness in history is that form of wickedness which parades under the cloak of religion, which does evil in the name of that which is right, true, and good. All right. So, and, and that's exactly what we see. We see this, this cloak of righteousness, but under it is just absolute heinous, sinful thought and sinful action that is is as wrong as wrong can be so all right so let's let's change gears a little bit here tom okay we, we've seen the the pharisees and sadducees and their and their incredible motivation here and what it is and 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 how damaging it was and we see jesus response to all that let's let's turn our attention to pontius pilate now as he would ultimately he would be the decision maker and as you mentioned pharisees and sadducees couldn't be the decision makers in Jesus bring, being brought to death. They had to have it through Pontius Pilate. So the Pharisees, um, they've shown their true colors. What about Pilate? You know, I've always thought of Pilate as a really weak kind of a guy. Give us a little bit of background into, into Pilate and his thinking in this particular situation. Well, Pilate was the Roman governor uh, of Judea, and the, the Romans had taken away the authority of Jews to do executions. And so he was a vital link for the Jews to get what they wanted in executing Jesus. So they had to come to him. He was the final judge. Right. He didn't want to kill Jesus. He saw that he was an innocent man. In fact, the one text where he says he, he asked for a bowl of water, he washed his hands, and he said, I am innocent of this blood. So he saw that this was something that should not have been done. But he did it anyway. And his motivation is interesting as well. Why, was he such a weak man that he would willingly do something so evil? Kind of looks like it. So. it. It looks like it, though. So, so why don't you think so? Well, there were some previous experiences that he had had with the Jews, and this is really the height of politics. Uh, Josephus talks about three incidences that happened prior to this time that set the whole political stage on why the Jews could have such power over a Pontius Pilate. I'll just mention one of them. He had brought in some Roman sh uh, shields uh, into the city. And uh, to the Jew, of course, it had the, the name of Tiberius Caesar on there. He thought he was honoring Caesar. Well, to the Jew, that was blasphemy because it was worshiping idols. And, uh, he th and they demanded that he take them out. 
And uh, he refused to take them out because now I'm going to offend Caesar. I'm going to let them control what I do with these, uh, these shields. And so they were very angry at him, and they actually wrote to Tiberius Caesar. And the, the philosophy of Caesar was keep the people content so the tax money continues to come in. And so he strongly reprimanded Pilate. And he says, take their shields out. He took them to Caesarea, which was not a holy city like Jerusalem. And so Pilate was reprimanded. And now this, this uh, threat of writing to Tiberius Caesar hung over his head. Anytime something would happen, they could write to him and get him in trouble. And if it happened again, Pilate would be really in trouble with Tiberius. So you're saying that's, that type of thing happened three different times then uh, with, yes. with Pilate? Well, the letter, a letter to Tiberius was only written once out of the three. But the other two show how ruthless uh, Pontius Pilate was. He actually murdered many of the Jews who protested some of the things he did. Another one example was uh, he built an aqueduct from Bethlehem, the Pools of Solomon, to Jerusalem. It's about 23 miles distant for the benefit of Jerusalem. But he used temple money to do it. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, they were incensed by that, and they revolted, and they, they came to his home in Caesarea, surrounded it. And he had uh, Roman soldiers come out dressed in cloaks so they wouldn't be recognized. He had them beat, beat them with clubs, and some of them died. And it was called the uh, what was it called the Aqueduct Riot. So, and there there was one one other incident that happened the same way. So there was a really political struggle going on between the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Pontius Pilate, and they had the upper hand because of this one philosophy of keep the people content. So he had to do. So, so you really see now how politics really was overwhelmingly in control of this situation because the Sadducees, who were so politically vibrant, shouldn't have been, but were, so politically involved, knew they could bend Pilate because they had done it before. And they knew if they created enough ruckus for something that wasn't going to make that big a difference from Pilate's perspective— they could get what they wanted, even if it was wrong. So they played all of their political cards, and they pressed him on this issue in such a way that not necessarily was he weak, but he, was, he had to be uh, you know, sort of wise as a serpent. He had to know when to give in to keep the peace so, the, uh, so those above him would still see him with respect. Yeah, but even in him, we see a very similar lesson that his, his preservation, the power that he was trying to preserve for himself, meant that was more important than the principle of knowing that he was crucifying an innocent man. So there again, pre, uh, what's the word? Uh, pre- self-preservation took precedence over the principle of doing what was right. And that's what politics ends up being about more often than not. And it ends up being that way inside of religion, outside of religion. Jonathan, go ahead. And we did see him, though, challenge Uh, the scribes and Pharisees, because he saw the hypocrisy. He asked for specifics respecting the treason, and that that floored them. They were surprised. Well, why aren't you taking our word for it? But but he pushed. He pushed back as much as he could. He could have done more, obviously, but um, when it got right down to it, his life was more important than an innocent man's. His position was more important. And, And that's what this really boils down to. In, in each case, when we look at the Pharisees, we look at the Sadducees, we look at Annas, we look at Caiaphas, and we look at Pontius Pilate, that exact principle seems to come up. My position is more important than the life of this man. 
my position, what I have, my power, my influence, what I've built is more important than the life of that man. I don't care how innocent he is. He is destroying something that belongs to me. And that speaks volumes. That's one of the great lessons we have to take out of this. That principle is always more important than what is expedient. You, we have a very short vision of what's expedient for us. We should never put that above principle. And, you know, again, Christianity has been guilty of these kinds of things throughout the ages. When you think about the Inquisitions, you know, you think about the, the papal system, and they're, 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 they're forcing themselves upon, upon others. You, and, and so when we look at Christianity, we see, wow, th- th- there's been an incredible amount of corruption. And the question, folks, the question you have to ask yourself is, am I involved in a Christian organization or church that is pushing that kind of political pressure and pushing the envelope of right versus wrong and expediency versus principle. Am I getting involved in that by just being quiet and listening? And if, look, if that's what's happening around you, you've got to ask yourself the question, why am I where I am? Should I be looking for something different, something higher, something that looks at, something that that absorbs godly behavior and godly righteousness? That's really what all of this comes down to, is we've got to be focused on the right things. This is Christian Questions. I'm Jonathan, here with Rick, with our special guest, Tom Ruggiero. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? Coming up, what was the end result of all this overwhelming political pressure? That's next. You're listening to Christian Questions. See videos, hear past shows, and talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome back. Today's episode is, How Were Politics Part of Jesus' Crucifixion? We're live Monday evening from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. That means we're on right now. Join our conversation via the chat board, or you can email us at ChristianQuestions.com, or you can send us a comment on your app. Out from the dark ages, errors from the past, and into the light of today, the original good news. Join us 24-7 at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so we have with us Tom Ruggiero, and we're talking about the politics of the crucifixion of Jesus. And what we are seeing is a dramatic revealing of just how corrupt those in power were. And when you think of God's chosen people, and Tom, you know, this, 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 it just, it, it just bothers me to my core. When you think of God's chosen people, and you think of that kind of influence at the at the top. In leadership positions, that kind of corruption, it's deeply, deeply troubling. Well, it says something about leadership as well. If you go through the history of Israel and the history of mankind, for that matter, yeah. when the leadership is corrupt, the people tend to follow. When the leadership is good and is righteous and is and, and follows God, the people tend to follow. So proper leadership is very important. I think the, the person who, who texted in before kind of made that point. Right. Proper leadership is really important, and in the kingdom, we're going to have proper leadership, and the people will follow. So, again, folks, is a lesson for you right here, right now, today. Make sure that whatever role you play is really, totally, entirely, completely, utterly motivated (laughs) 
by godly righteousness, not by what you'd like, not by what you want, by, not by position, not by pressure, not by power, but by godly righteousness. So, so let, let's move on with this, and let's look at, in, in a moment, look at an influence from one other individual that we haven't mentioned yet. Uh, but, but first, Jonathan, let's go to uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 11 to 15, because here is where you've got the, the emotionalism that's built off of the incredible jockeying for political power, and this is what it brings us to. And today we call it mob mentality, Rick. Yes, yes. All right, Jonathan, you froze up there, brother. Am I back? You're back. Let's try that again. Okay. But the chief priest stirred up the multitude that he should rather release Barabbas unto them, And Pilate again answered and said unto them, What then shall I do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried again, Crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out exceedingly, Crucify him. And Pilate wished to content the multitude, released unto them Barabbas, and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So Pilate gives in. Uh, and like you said, he had learned through the experience, uh, the policy of Tiberius, that you got to keep the people calm. And this was like a—it looked like a tidal wave, I imagine, to him, of, of anger if he didn't give in to it. And Rick, Barabbas, wasn't he imprisoned for insurrection and rioting, which is one of the false claims they're accusing Jesus of? <laughs> Tom, any— That's how ironic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom, go ahead. No, that, that phrase, uh, wishing to content the multitude, sometimes we read right past it. That's the key. Yeah. That's what moved Pilate to do what he did. Uh, in a way, I feel bad for him. You know, he saw innocence. He tried to do something. He just didn't have the courage to, to put his own, uh, his own uh, political future on the line for it. Okay. This was a Jew. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you're right, though. He did, he did make an effort to a degree. So, John, uh, Jonathan, let's go to John 19, 10, and 12, just to give a sense to that effort of trying to do uh, the, the right thing. Pilate therefore saith unto him, Speakest thou unto me now? Knowest thou not that I have power to release thee, and have power to crucify thee? Jesus answered him, Thou wouldest have no power against me, except if it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth me unto thee hath greater sin. Upon this Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou release this man, thou art not Caesar's friend. Every one that maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. So, so Tom, it's kind of interesting because Pilate is, is looking for Jesus to give him the words to give him the, the, the motivation to stand up for him. And Jesus really doesn't do that, does he? Yeah, no, he's a willing sacrifice. Uh, that last phrase, uh, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone that makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. That was the political dagger that yeah. got Pilate to do what they wanted him to do. Ugh. <laughs> if you could see Tom's face now, folks, he's got that look of disgust. And, and, and you think about it. That's something that we should all look at and say, that is disgusting. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we in any way, shape, or form in our daily existence as Christians, do we ever bend in that direction 
of doing the thing that's more convenient because of the peer pressure, because of the political pressure, because of the financial pressure, or whatever pressure it is, do we do the thing that is more convenient rather than the thing that is right in God's eyes? You know, there's another factor that comes in here, and that's fear. Yeah. You know, um, not just selfishness, but I think he was afraid of what would happen. And I think a lot of times we're motivated by fear. We're afraid that if I do the right thing, it's going to hurt me. Um, or, you know, I guess it, it goes very similar to, to losing your position. But fear, I think, motivates a lot of people. And the, I think the answer to fear is looking to the promises of God, that he will not abandon us, that he will reward righteousness, maybe not in our time frame, but in his time frame, he will appreciate that and it will end in our blessing. Nothing we do towards righteousness will end up in our hurting, only in our blessing. And that will be the eventual end. Sometimes doing something toward righteousness ends up hurting in between. Jesus is the perfect example, but look at the perfect results. So, um, yeah. all right, so, so let's change gears here, Tom, for, uh, for the, the, the balance of the, uh, the, the podcast. We've got lots of guilty parties here. We've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Annas and Caiaphas and, and Pilate, some more than others. What role do you think Satan played in this whole scenario? We haven't talked about Satan at all, but where was he? What was he doing? What do you think he was, uh, how was how he provoking this uh, behind the scenes, if you will? Well, we can only surmise, right? Because right. we have no scripture that tells us exactly how he was involved. But Paul tells us that he's the God of this world. And so even if you trace historically that he was always intent on destroying the seed of promise, right from the Garden of Eden, when, when God said that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, I think that was a, a keynote for Satan. It perked his attention. If that's how you intend to kill me, I'm going to try to destroy that seed. And if you trace the lineage that came down and then eventually went Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, every attempt he made to destroy the seed. And I think that's why there's anti-Semitism today, because that's Satan's attempt to destroy the seed of Abraham. And so I think he was highly involved in this. And if he couldn't destroy the seed, he was going to corrupt it. Because corrupting something good is often more deceptive than destroying it. Ah, there you because go. now I think the people are, are doing right, they're doing right in the eyes of God, and yet it's corrupted. And so I think that's what he was doing. I think he corrupted the Jewish system with the oral traditions. I think he corrupted the Sadducees by the Greek philosophies. And when they lost the purity of the Mosaic law, they lost the true direction of God. And so he really had them more captive than had he wiped them out. He was using them. All right. So I think he was very involved in all of this. And all I think he really contributed to the death of Jesus. So th you, you, you said a mouthful there, and I just got to slow you down because I think I, we, we just got to go back over that. So, and it makes really, it really does make perfect sense. One of the best ways to, um, to beat down your enemy is to not take away what they believe in, but it's to corrupt what they believe in. So by allowing the oral traditions of the Pharisees to work their way in, and become known as rock-solid law of, the, of the, the Jewish people is an utter corruption of what the law really was supposed to stand for. To allow the Pharisees to get all of that Greek influence, or the Sadducees, rather, to be, have so much of that Greek pagan influence in their thinking and to become more politically oriented was a corruption of a system that could have glorified God. 
So to the person on the outside looking in, you say, oh, a Pharisee. There's somebody that knows the law. I guess I should listen to them. And the answer really is no, because they're teaching a corrupted version of something godly, which is more powerful than taking the whole thing away. Just that's exactly what you said. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually continues to do that. That it's been something that's worked before. Why not keep doing it? And you know, you look back in the history of Christianity, it's one corruption after another. You know, Christianity has murdered more people in the name of God than any other uh, entity. And so he's corrupted Christianity in many, many ways. And, and I won't name anything specific necessarily, but if you look at the history of Christianity, the Inquisitions was all about uh, impure Christianity. The persecutions of Christians by Christians was a corruption. Uh, many of the doctrinal things that came out were corruptions. The system looked beautiful, the big, beautiful temples, the awe-inspiring, you know, uh, churches that just inspire by their stained glass. Well, that's just fluff. That doesn't really mean anything. Uh, it's really what, um, it's worked before, so Satan has, has done it continually down through the age. And we have to be real cognizant of that. And, and look, today, when you look at the, 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 uh, the gospel of, uh, of abundance, you know, the idea of, you know, God wants you to be rich, that's a corruption. That's not, that's not what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Not even remotely close. When you start to take the Bible and take every word literally without understanding uh, symbolism in Scripture, that's a corruption. And there's a lot of that that goes around. So we've got to be really careful that we don't fall into those types of corruption as well. So let me just ask you another question now. In, in relation to all of this corruption and Satan's activity, do you think Jesus really um, understood the depth and the ugliness of the corruption that was going to be used against him? What, what do you think? Where do you think he, he how much do you think he, he got and, or how much might have been new to him? What, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know that he knew every single detail of what was going to be done. I think he was maybe even surprised at the level of corruption there was, but he knew he was going to be mistreated. If you read Psalm 22, which is a prophecy of, of Jesus, it talks about the bulls of Bashan coming around You're and right. he's surrounded by wild dogs. He knew all those. So he knew that it was going to be really hard, his own people hating him. But whether he knew every specific detail on what they would do, I, I don't know that for sure. So the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So comment on that in relation to the evil that he had to face uh, at this point in his life. And this, again, was the culmination of a lot of long-time planning of political corruption that really came to a head, especially when the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, joined forces. Yeah, that phrase, he learned obedience, does not suggest that he didn't know how to obey before. Right. I think what it means is it perfected his obedience in circumstances that he hadn't experienced before. Never in his human pre-human existence was he ever challenged with such evil, such contradiction against himself. And yet he obeyed in every instance. It was almost like the hardening of steel. His obedience just became that much stronger when it was challenged that much more bitterly. And you really, that's a, a reason for our own trials in ourselves, that if we can be loyal to principle and loyal to truth and loyal to God, when they're being challenged, we will be better for them. And I think that's what happened to Jesus. He became a more faithful person uh, in an individual through the suffering that he experienced. And, you know, that faithfulness was incredibly costly because 
it cost him even having his father's face turned from him. And it, 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 it cost him physically the torment and the torture that he went through. It cost him emotionally because all of his faithful followers abandoned him. And yet he stayed true. And like you said, uh, the, the, the steel became stronger and stronger, and it did not yield at all to any of this. So, Tom, let, let's, let's wrap this up. What, uh, we've got like two minutes here. What do we walk away with from, from all of this? Well, we've examined the good and the bad. And you know, the ugly. And, the Pharisees. <laughs> and what? And the ugly. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> in the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, the lesson is that true religion is not based on outward form. And in fact, the scriptures are so clear that God hates it when people are just pretending to be religious. The outward form, if that's the only thing that's important to us, we're missing the mark. He's looking for religion to change our hearts. And uh, that's what we see uh, in someone who's rightly exercised by experience, he's looking for sincerity and conviction, not in self-preservation. And then when you look at people like Pilate, I think the lesson of how important it is for us to live by righteous principles, to defend the principles when necessary, to stand up for what's right, to always put righteousness as more important than what's expedient for our financial or social welfare. Those are the things that God's looking for, not how successful we are in business or in society. And then turning to Jesus, of course, I absolutely love his ability to quietly accept the injustices that were done for, uh, to him for the sake of pleasing the Father. Pleasing God was more important to him than being unfairly persecuted and lied about. That's one of the legacies he left. Not just that he came to die for us, but he came to set the example for us on how to live a righteous life. So, well said, well said, and we've got 20 seconds left before the music starts, so good job. Okay. <laughs> so, Tom, look, thanks, thanks so much for being with us uh, tonight. Yes, and, thank you, Tom. And going through this. It's real eye-opening experience to see all of these things unfold. So, folks, as we wrap this up tonight, um, again, look, you know, we want to learn lessons from the failures of others. And we need to look at the failures of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and understand that those failures meant can mean success if we take the lessons, look at the things to watch out for and say, can't go there because godliness and that do not ever, ever mix. For Jonathan and Rick and Tom and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us tonight. We'll be back again next week with another subject. But till then politics and religion simply don't mix. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from you, our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app. Search Christian Questions in your app store. And as always, we look forward to bringing you a new program next week. <laughs>